So this morning, um, I'll be reading out of Luke chapter 22. For those of you that don't know, my name is Jared. And in Luke 22, uh, verse 14, I'm going to read here out of the New Living Translation. Now it says, when the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now, I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it amongst yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks for then he broke it in pieces and gave it to his disciples saying this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me after supper he took another cup of wine and said this cup is the new covenant between God and his people an agreement confirmed with my blood which is poured out as a sacrifice for you but here at the table sitting among us as a friend is the man who will betray me for it has been determined that the son of man must die but what sorrow awaits the man or awaits the one who shall betray him so That piece of scripture, of course, we've heard it a bunch of times. You know, it's a very popular communion uh, scripture that is used, uh, quoted throughout the Bible. But what's interesting about it is we gave thanks this past Thursday as a holiday. You know, we have so much to be thankful for. We live in a great country. We have more freedoms here than anywhere else in the rest of the world. But, you know, Jesus Christ, he sat with his disciples at the table. I find it interesting. He gave thanks the day before he was about to die. He was going to go to the cross. He was going to suffer for all of us so he could pay that way so we would not have to take that punishment. And he sat there and still gave thanks despite that the man that was going to betray him took that piece of bread and that blood as well. You know, it's very interesting. You know, we, we, may, be ups- we may get upset, you know, when stuff doesn't go our way, you know, stuff like that. But it's always important to have a thankful attitude. Like I'm a Keras student and one of my favorite instructors, Barry Bennett, he always said that thankfulness will go a very long way. You know, thankfulness is at least, it's like a medicine. It's very, it's something that renews you. It can bring healing to your body. It can bring deliverance for you. So thankfulness is something that um, we all should just take some time, not even just on Thanksgiving, but just at any day in general to give thanks for anything. You know, you can give thanks for a lot of things, your job, um, your family, the Packers, even though they're terrible right now. Um, <laughs> but the importance is, is just to give thanks. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you sent your son Jesus to die for us. Thank you, Lord for taking that cup of suffering from us. Thank you, Lord, for going to that cross and taking that punishment away from us. And Lord, help us every day to give thanks every day for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise you, Lord. Lord, we do pray that you be exalted in everything that we do today, in every word, every deed, every song, every prayer every thought that the name of Jesus be exalted and that you be honored and that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven we praise you for it father in Jesus name hallelujah praise the Lord well you notice I I have uh, the handheld microphone today which means uh, you never know what's about to happen but I know you're gonna be blessed so if you remember back when I started the uh, series on uh, what was the series on? Good news. That's right. Thank you. That was a test. 
all of a sudden I forgot what I preached. So you ever do that? You ever get home and somebody goes, what was the sermon about? And you're like, I, it was good, but I don't remember what it was. I even do that. I do that to my, when I, when I preach. But when I, back then when I uh, was first introducing, and I said, you know what, you, what you need to do is everybody needs to go study it for yourself. You know, go, go study it, go, go look up good news, go look it up. And, and Well, somebody actually did. And uh, I mean, not that nobody else did, but I know somebody did because I talked to them and they started sharing some stuff about good news, about the, the word that I can't pronounce and they'll pronounce it perfectly, I'm sure. And they, and, and, uh, they, they started to share more and more. And I was like, man, you got to preach that. That's good stuff. And so this morning I want to introduce to you for if you don't know him yet, uh, Charles Shackley. Some of you know him by a different name, which I said I wouldn't use this morning, but I want to introduce him as Charles Shackley. Give him a big warm welcome this morning. He said he was going to do that, and it still threw me. Uh, most people, <laughs> for those of you who don't know us, uh, there's a lot of new faces in the church. Uh, Suzanne, Suzanne and I attended the church for 23 years. We started in the year 2000, just a few months before Pastor John came here. Uh, we raised our family here, and it's been five or six, five or six years since I last spoke. Uh, but the last time I spoke, I shared what I was learning about the vine and the branches. And, 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 and what I'm going to be teaching today is, is kind of what I've been learning since I started pulling on that thread, right? Uh, so here's an outline. There's going to be three sections, okay? So I want, I'm giving you the roadmap in advance so that you can, wow, I sound like God. Uh, <laughs> 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 so that you can follow along. There's going to be three distinct sections. So the first section is going to be the backstory on the word gospel. So I will tell you when I want the slides, because uh, people are going to start ignoring me. Uh, so the, the outline, there's going to be three sections. The backstory on the word gospel, the euangelion, that's the word that Pastor John can't pronounce. And where it's, it, it's where it came from, how it was used at the time of Jesus, and what people would have understood it to mean. Okay. So as a spoiler, I'm going to tell you right now, they heard the announcement of a new king and a new kingdom. That's what the word means. Next, I'm going to share uh, about the kingdom and what, that pro what made that proclamation so irresistible to the people who were hearing it. And then lastly, I'm going to provide a little bit of color uh, on the different social groups that he was speaking to. We often read through our gospels and we hear people's described with a name and we're just like, don't know who that is. <laughs> They're all the same, okay? But they're actually very distinct, different, distinct people with different views of the world. And, and one of the big things that made them different was, was how they answered this question, what do I do with Rome? Okay, and we're gonna get to that. So I'm gonna begin with Luke 4.16. Uh, it's just to remind us of what PJ's been, been teaching. And, and we've read it quite a few times, and the thing that I want to point out is, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And that word uh, uh, gospel is what I really want to focus on, okay? So as I mentioned, I want to give the backstory on the word gospel. Greek, Luke, Luke wrote in Greek. So he did not use the word gospel. That's an English word. The word he used was euangelion, okay? So slide one, uh, the euangelion, this is, this, I just looked this up in Vine's, Vine's Expository Dictionary, right? Very handy, handy resource. So that word that we, we translate good news, uh, the definition in Vine's is in the New Testament, it denotes the good tidings of the kingdom of God 
and of salvation through Christ to be received by faith on the basis of his expiatory death, his burial, resurrection, and ascension. So I'm just kind of curious. As you read that definition, uh, what part resonates with you? I imagine it's the second part, right? It's that saved by grace through faith, right? That's what we think about. But there's a really, really important part that I think most of us just skate right by because we're Americans and we don't, we're not part of a kingdom. We don't have a king as part of our history, right? And, and, and that's the part that says the good tidings of the kingdom of God. Matthew, Mark, and Luke make a really, really big deal about the kingdom. Uh, it starts with John the Baptist. He, his message was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's where the whole story begins, okay? So I did a word search uh, on the kingdom. Let's go to slide two. In the Blue Letter Bible, just typed in kingdom, got a whole bunch of verses, and these are a bunch of, these are the greatest hits, you know, from the gospels right here, right? We're gonna recognize them all. So the first six are, are, are really Jesus starting his ministry, right? And what he's doing is he's teaching about the kingdom, but he's also going about demonstrating the kingdom to everybody, right? There's this new king, there's this new kingdom, and this is what it looks like, okay? So from the time Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he was going about Galilee and he was proclaiming to all these crowds what the gospel of the kingdom was and healing everyone, demonstrating the kingdom. And then he gets into the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We get to the Lord's Prayer. It starts with your kingdom come. And then wrapping the whole thing and putting a little bow on it, Matthew repeats that exact same bit of the story that Jesus was going about teaching the kingdom. So Jesus the rabbi was teaching his disciples. He was rightly interpreting Torah, and then he was walking it out in front of them. And at this point, after demonstrating it for a period of time, he says, hey, you guys, I want you to do what you've learned. You go out, you preach the kingdom, and you heal all the sick. And then later, Matthew 13, awesome chapter of parables that I've never, ever understood. Right? They're supposed to make the kingdom accessible to us, and they're confusing as heck. But he takes an entire chapter to try to communicate the culture of the kingdom that he's announcing with the parables. And then a little bit later, he wraps, we wrap this up just jumping to, oh, well, there's, there's, there's also my kingdom, uh, John 18. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. He's teaching people what is his kingdom and what is not his kingdom. So Mark ends up wrapping up the good news this way. Now after John was taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the euangelion of God and saying the time is fulfilled, it's now. The kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the euangelion. So Jesus preached the kingdom a lot. Uh, notice his message was both repent, change your thinking about the kingdom because you all have thoughts about what the kingdom is gonna look like and the kingdom has now come upon you. Start paying attention. 
And we're going to be coming back to both of those points. But first, I want to drive deeper into that word euangelion. Okay, so as I said, it's, euangelion is not a Christian word. It's a Greek word. And it predated Jesus by centuries. Uh, 333 BC, Alexander the Great was conquering the whole known world. And as he went into a new country, he would declare his euangelion, which was basically, hi, I'm here. <laughs> there's a new king and there's a new kingdom. Uh, his good news was a new kingdom with Greek Hellenistic cultural elements. And those cultural elements can be seen in any Greek ruin around the Middle East. It was the forums where entertainment was present. It was the circus where there were sporting events. It was hospitals, I never can remember the Greek word for that, that provided health care. And then it's education, what they call gymnasium. These ruins are in every single city he planted, all over, every city he overcame. So he didn't need to leave an army to conquer these nations. Like the Romans did. Uh, he, met, he, he met the needs of the conquered people. They were glad he was there. So the good news, we are here. That's what Alexander the Great said. So Rome does the very same thing. Every time there's a new emperor, there's this euangelion. And there's a new coin printed with the face of a new emperor on that coin. And there's sporting events across the empire. Okay? So let's, let's go to the next slide. This is a, this is an, a, a relic, an, ar an archaeological artifact from Prine. It's a town on the coast of Turkey. Paul doesn't mention it, but he would have gone through it on his way to Miletus. Okay? So when Caesar Augustus came to power, he announced his euangelion. And the people of Prine decided that they would build him a temple on the, uh, in their agora. And their agora was that, that public space where they would have ma the market or, or assemblies of people, right? But think of like a town square, right? So they build this little temple, and on the side of the temple, they put this artifact, this engraving. And it says this. I found several translations, but this one really uh, kind of pulls out a lot of the boilerplate wording. There was a lot of legalese in it, right? The kind of thing that a government would write. So since divine providence has brought to life the most perfect good in Augustus, whom she filled with virtues for the benefit of all mankind, bestowing on us Augustus Caesar as savior of the world, for he has put an end to war and brought perfect peace, which he had done, the Pax Romana, right? By the advent of his birth, he brought the gospel, the euangelion of peace to all mankind. Never will another gospel surpass the gospel that was announced on his birth. He is not only Lord of the empire, but Lord of the earth and of the calendar and of time itself. So why do I share this? Why, why, why am I making a big deal? It's certainly not to diminish the, the, the spiritual significance of what the gospel is to all of us who believe in Christ, right? That's, that's not my point, right? My point is to make clear what Jesus was really saying so we can understand what people were actually hearing and how they responded to the good news. Okay, so in the movie, The Princess Bride, any Princess Bride fans in here? I go, oh yeah, it's an awesome... If you haven't seen it, look it up on Netflix. It's awesome. So Wesley worked as a field hand for Buttercup, right? And whenever she asked him to do something, he would respond, as you wish. Yeah, everyone knows this, as you wish. And I looked up the quote, because I don't have this memorized. 
Grandpa says, this is how the movie says, uh, that day she was amazed to discover that when he was saying, as you wish, what he meant was, I love you. In my family, when someone, we've been watching this movie since the kids were like this tall. In my family, when someone asks me to do something for them, I often just respond, as you wish. Susanna knows exactly what that means. I don't have to tell her. I'm just saying I love her. By definition, and common usage of this word euangelion, the euangelion announced a new king and a new kingdom. This is exactly what they were hearing. No one would have, no one would have heard anything else. There's a new king and a new kingdom. So let's look at the story of Jesus healing the centurion's servant to quickly illustrate what I'm talking about. This is in Matthew uh, 8, I want to say. Uh, so Jesus goes into Capernaum. And as he enters the town, the centurion comes, comes to him and says, Hey, my, my servant's paralyzed. And it, it, can you come heal him? And Jesus just says, Sure, let's go do this. It's kind of an interesting response to a Roman, right? Kind of an interesting response to a Roman. But the Roman, he's been around the Jewish people for some time. And he goes, Whoa, 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 whoa. I understand your laws. You're probably going to become ceremonial unclean if you come into my house. Uh, he might even be violating Torah to do this, right? So you don't have to do that. You don't have to come to my house, right? Uh, just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. What he was saying was, the last Yuan Galleon announced an emperor. He claimed to be God, and he has the power to give and to take away. And he delegates that power right down through the ranks of the military to me. I know he has the power of life and death in his hands. You have come onto the scenes, Jesus. You're declaring a new king, a new kingdom, and you're demonstrating it by healing everyone. Just speak the word. Just say it. I, 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 Jesus' response is, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. So here's my question. What did the centurion have faith in? He certainly was not full of faith about salvation through Christ. To receive by faith on the basis of his expiatory death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. None of that had happened yet, right? His faith was in Jesus himself and Jesus' message. He was proclaiming himself to be king, and he was demonstrating the power of his kingdom. Okay. So, one last bit of info to help us understand the euangelion. Uh, uh, let's go to slide five. Miles Monroe provides a really useful definition of the kingdom uh, for my purposes or our purposes today. So first, let's say what it's not. A kingdom is not a religion. A kingdom is not a democracy. That's our culture. And it's not a republic. That's the way we elect presidents. So Miles' definition is a kingdom is a governing influence of a king over his territory, his realm, 
impacting it with his will, his purpose, and his intent. Thy kingdom come. Producing a citizenry of people, that's us, who express his culture and manifest his nature. So religion produces a system that people try to follow, a list of rules. A kingdom produces a culture. Okay, so wrapping up this first section, the gospel was unequivocally understood by everyone, the euangelion, to be the proclamation of a new kingdom and a new king. Every time you read that, every time you hear the word gospel, understand how subversive, how seditious this statement would have been. There would have been a lot of people who were really unhappy <laughs> with what he was claiming. And it was really irresistible. Thousands were added every day. Large crowds followed him. In spite of the fact that in a very short period of time, Paul, Saul, was going to be going all over Judea, Galilee, the areas around there, chasing and hunting down believers so he could kill them. And very shortly, the Romans were going to be crucifying people and throwing them to the lions. And yet, within three centuries, the whole Roman Empire was Christian. That is a really, really irresistible euangelion. So then my question is, what, makes, what made the euangelion so irresistible? That's the next section. And to answer that, we're gonna, I have to do a little bit of a detour, okay? How many of you recall what a thesis statement was in an essay, right? It's been a while. Uh, but in the first paragraph of our, of, our, of our essays, the last sentence was the thesis statement, right? We built from the abstract and the general down to the point of what we we're gonna talk about. And then each paragraph after that had a topic sentence. And that was this literary device, this training that we were educated in so that people could follow the plot. They could follow our argument. They knew where we were going because we structured what we were writing in a certain way, right? Okay, so go to slide six. A chiasm is like a thesis statement if you're writing the Jewish scriptures, okay? It's just a different literary device. And it's new to us, but it would have been very well understood by students of Jewish Jewish scripture, okay? And uh, so, where are we at? This is, a, this, is a, this is just a really, really simple explanation I found on the internet. A chiasm is a sequence of ideas presented and then repeated in reverse order. The result is this mirror effect, right? It, what you started with gets reflected back to, 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 to kind of focus your thinking. The structure of a chiasm is usually expressed through a series of letters where the, the, if you have two ideas, it's A and B, and then it gets reflected back B and A, right? So they use letters to kind of describe this, A, B, B, A. It also often includes something in the middle, so A, B, X, B, A, which would be the X kind of becomes the center point, right? Um, so here's some examples. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 
And there's a bunch of different structures, right? There's the ABBA we were just talking about. There's ABCD, CBA. Then there's a repeating pattern where it's ABCD, ABCD. But when you start to see these repeating patterns in scripture, it's the literary device. It's like the thesis statement. They're trying to give you a clue about what they want you to discover in the passage that they're writing, okay? Uh, one additional thought. These Hebrew writers often hit a nugget. Unlike Western thinkers, which is basically, tell me what you're gonna say, get to the point, let's move on. They'd bury this little truth in the middle of the chiasm and they left it to you to figure out what that nugget was, okay? So let's, slide, slide seven. I just, I found this on the internet. It's not directly related <laughs> to anything I'm talking about today, but it's a great example of a chiasm, okay? So I just wanna use it as an example. So as you, it's, it's structured to make kind of this, the, the mirror image reflection there. It's an ABCD, DCBA kind of mirror image chiasm. It's from Joshua 1. So the A's, I will be with you. A prime, the bottom one. I will be with you wherever you go. And then you go to the B's, be strong and courageous. He actually repeats it twice in B. In B prime, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. He repeats that thought. And then be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded so that you may have success. Be, C prime, be careful to do according to all that is written in it so that you will have success. You can, it's just this mere image thing is just so crystal clear when you structure it this way, right? So, so then you get to D. The nugget is... This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. God is instructing Joshua on how to have success. Stay in my law. Meditate on it all the time. And then you're going to be careful to do the whole law, and you'll have success. And because you're in the Word all the time, and you're meditating on me, I am the Word, you will be strong and courageous because you know I'm with you. And you can be confident that I'll be there for it. See, see, it's just a structure, right? So let's use this knowledge of chiasms to look at a couple of passages that reveal the culture uh, that the new king is revealing in his kingdom. So Mark Kretschmer uh, just taught this really excellent class on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and you can find those classes on YouTube. Just Google Musings of a Jesus Lover. Uh, he called the Sermon on the Mount the Kingdom Constitution. If you, if, but if we refer back to the definition that Miles Monroe gave us, uh, I would probably just say it a little bit differently. We could also say Jesus was teaching the culture of the kingdom. He was teaching his will, his purpose, and his intent to produce a citizenry of people who express his culture. So let's just take a couple of, looks at it, look, a couple of examples from the Sermon on the Mount. As, uh, as Mark worked through the Beatitudes, I saw something for the very first time. I said this to him in class. I always thought the Beatitudes was this like random collection of Jesus' greatest hits, maybe. <laughs> Completely unco uh, uh, uncorrelated. <laughs> you know, maybe even a Christian version of Chinese fortune cookies. <laughs> Let's just open one of these and see what's inside, right? <laughs> but what Mark showed me was how they related to each other. Uh, and, and these are the notes that I took in the mornings after his classes. Where I, and I'm just going to read them to you because it, 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 this is what I took home as I was, I, was, I was seeing something for the very first time. So Matthew, uh, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These people are poor in spirit because they lack right standing with God. They know there is something more, something they're missing. They feel a drawing from God and may not even know what it is. They know there is this gap inside their life, and that's why they're poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will receive comfort. Uh, Mark, Mark linked this to, to 2 Corinthians 7, where Paul is writing to the Corinthians. Paul had written his previous letter, and he'd grieved them. He kind of chewed them out. Uh, but now in this letter, he writes, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. And that's the sorrow. That's what Mark taught in the class. That's the sorrow that Jesus is talking about. Blessed are those who mourn. Those people who have behaviors God does not want in their lives anymore. They haven't overcome them, and they mourn because they know there's a better way. They have an earnest sorrow that leads to change. Paul wrote it this way. They have an earnest sorrow according to the will of God that produces a turning to God that leads to freedom. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek are not pushovers. They are willing to humble themselves and yield to God. They will do it God's way even when it is very difficult and even when it costs them something. My wife Susanna said it this way. They have the power to do it their way, but they yield that power to God, choosing to do it his way. They're adopting his culture of obedience. And then we get to blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. These people recognize their poverty of spirit. As they press in to know Jesus, he peels the onion of their life, one thing at a time, over many years, he reveals something he wants changed and it produces a godly sorrow leading to change. They trust the kingdom is, he is revealing to them and yield to his way of doing things, but they hunger and thirst to know more about his way, about his kingdom. They have passed that tipping point of trying to figure out the rules. And I was thinking about like being a younger Christian, where you want to see how close to the edge you can skate. <laughs> can I get away with this, God? <laughs> they've passed that point, and they've tipped over to hungering and thirsting to know his way, his culture. That progression was eye-opening to me, but there's more. There's a nugget in the Beatitudes we're supposed to find. Go to slide eight. Took the liberty of formatting this. Uh, all the content here is, is from a, uh, a blog post from Mitch Chase. I just formatted it to make it a little more obvious. So we're dealing with a chiasm here. You can see in verse three and verse 10 that the promise is the same, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Anytime you see that mirror image, figure out if there's more symmetry, right? Is really what it boils down to. Uh, another thing you notice is that the verb tense in 3 and 8 is in the present tense. It's the only ones in the present tense. Again, showing a difference, a reflection. Um, you can't see this in English, but in the Hebrew, each of the four groups has 36 words. Kind of giving you a clue that this is two groups of four. Okay? Treat them a little bit differently. I haven't, I haven't discussed uh, the last four, four Beatitudes, but many teachers say that the first group focuses on our disposition towards God, and the second group is our disposition towards others. Basically, how his culture has changed our heart 
and now gets reflected out to the people around us, okay? And then the last thing that kind of indicates that this is a chiasm is look at the verb tenses there on the right. There's actually a chiastic structure to the verb tenses. The first and the second, the first and the last are in the present tense. The second and the, and the seventh are in the future divine passive, which I have no idea what that even means. The, the third and the sixth are the future active with object, and the middle are the future divine passive. And that's not an accident. That's not an accident. The writer is saying, find the nugget. And so what's the nugget? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That's the center of the chiasm. That's where we're supposed to be figuring out what the nugget is. The nugget is, if you want to know the righteousness of God, then forgive others. Show them mercy. He's giving us a clue about his culture. Let me give you another example. This is from Matthew 6, 9 through 13. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And many people think that the whole Sermon on the Mount is a chiasm and that the Lord's Prayer is actually the center point of that chiasm, okay? So what's the nugget we're supposed to discover in the Lord's Prayer? It would be obvious to every one of Jesus's crowd. That's not completely true. There were some people from the Decapolis that weren't Jewish, and there were people from Syria that weren't Jewish. But it would have been obvious to every one of the Jewish members of his crowd, his audience. We have to remember, Jesus was Jewish. All of his disciples were Jewish. They had a life that was a rhythm of synagogue and daily prayers. And they had a lot of daily prayers that the rabbis had given them. There was the Shema. There was the Tefillah the Amidah, the, the Kaddish. Uh, the Amidah in particular was a very long prayer. It was a series of 18 benedictions that were taken out of their Torah, their Psalms, where they, made, they, they, they would have to say this every day at noon, and it was long. So just the sheer volume of all of this prayer kind of inspired this little kind of Reader's Digest condensed version kind of thing where they would, they would go to the local rabbi and they'd say, hey, can you give us like a short version of this so that we can meet the obligation but not spend so much time doing it, right? And, and for all you, all of you uh, fans of The Chosen, I'm assuming there's a few Chosen fans out there, can you imagine Peter, that character, going to Jesus and he, this is just ridiculous. Can... <laughs> Can, can you make this a little easier on us? Can, gee, this, is how, this is how the Bible records it. Jesus teaches to pray. Sounds very holy, doesn't it? I can see Peter just saying, what's the short version from you? You're my rabbi, right? And they say it this way. John has taught his disciples. Matthew doesn't capture this part. The short, easy version of prayer. <laughs> Jesus, please teach us to pray. I think that's what's going on. Uh, I always imagined that the Lord's Prayer was this unique prayer that Jesus had crafted for us as believers. It wasn't. It wasn't. 
What he did was the condensed version of their daily prayers. Most of it comes out of the 18 benedictions of the Amidah, but it comes out of all of their daily prayers. It is the Reader's Digest condensed version of all this burdensome prayer. Okay, so the nugget is not in what he taught. It wasn't what was in all of their original prayers that he just, it's what he added. Remember, these people said these things every single day, all day long. They would have immediately recognized that he had made a significant, substantive addition that you're not supposed to do, right? You're not supposed to add to what the rabbis have taught you. And here's this wacky rabbi adding, Jesus, you, you, you teach with authority. The authority they're talking about is the fact that he stands up and changes stuff. <laughs> so what's the nugget? The Amidah doesn't say anything about forgiving our debtors. All those benedictions, oh yeah, they talk about forgive me. Some of them even talk about, God, forgive my, my brethren as he's seeking forgiveness, right? But nowhere does it say, forgive my debtors. If you doubt me, you don't think I'm telling you the truth. Look at verses 14 and 15. It supports my point. After teaching what was supposedly a brand new prayer, he only expounds on one point. It's the point he added, forgiveness. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. He was expounding on the part he added. John tells us about the final dinner Jesus has with his disciples before he goes to the cross. He interprets the Passover dinner for them. This is my body. This is my blood. He takes one last run at demonstrating the kingdom by washing their feet. Then he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Every two years, reading through the Bible with the church, I come across verses again for the first time in two years, right? And my practice is, I don't understand that. What are you saying there? What does that passage mean? Holy Spirit, will you please explain this one to me? And often what happens is I hear nothing, and I'll say, see you in two years. But this particular time I said, when, when, I, when I asked, <laughs> so I'd, I'd read this passage for a lot of years and I'd often ask, what does this mean? And, and, and actually what I was asking was this, Holy Spirit, please tell me the list of rules I'm supposed to follow, the list of commandments. Make it very clear to me. I was being very religious. I wanted my list of rules. But one year, I noticed just a few verses later, John says, and this is my commandment, love one another. So love, the God kind of love, is called agape. We all know that word, it's, it, it's, but it's central to the culture of the kingdom, 
Okay, we, we, we understand the family kind of love. We understand the brotherly love, phileos. We even really understand the, you know, the eros kind of love of a couple, right? But agape, the God kind of love, that one's really tough for me. It's just a hard thing to get my brain around. So I want to go back to the Beatitudes to get a sense of what God's love looks like. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to repeat myself. A lot of what I read from my notes, I'm going to go through again. Uh, I hope you stay with me, okay? There's a point. So let's start with the word blessed. Let's start with the word blessed. It means favored by God. That's what it means, favored by God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These people recognize the poverty of their spirit. As they press in to know Jesus, he peels the onion of their life. One thing at a time, he reveals something he wants changed and it produces a godly sorrow leading to change. They trust the kingdom he is revealing to him, to them, and yield to his way of doing things. But they hunger and thirst to know more about the kingdom. Of course, these people are favored by God, right? These are the good guys. <laughs> the meek, they're willing to humble themselves and yield to God. They have the power to do it their way, but choose to yield that power to God's way of doing things. So, so if I was voting, I'd say, yeah, God, they should be in too, right? They're pretty good. Those who mourn, this is the person who has filled the gap in their life, but still have behaviors God does not want them to have in their lives. They've not overcome them. They mourn because they know there is a better way. They do not have victory yet. Their spiritual lives are messy. They're unseemly. Within the agape of God, they're also blessed. They're favored. The poor in spirit, they're unchurched. They're the prodigals doing it their own way, the fallen away. These people do not know God. In the kingdom of God, these people are blessed. They're also favored. This is the scandalous love of God who runs to meet the prodigal, brings out a robe, brings out a ring, brings out a, 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 fatted, a fattened calf, and has a party that the prodigal is returned. God sees the love. No, no. God sees the potential in everyone. And that's agave. So in Matthew 7, 12, summing up the Sermon on the Mount, which is the culture of the kingdom, he says, so you all and everything do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Jesus was radical. He reinterprets everything. He reinterprets everything. In the culture of the kingdom, God, this is what I learned, in the culture of the kingdom, God is as concerned about how we treat others as he is about how well we keep his commandments. And I want to be clear. I'm not, I'm not saying that I don't. And, I'm, and I don't think Jesus was saying that we should ignore sin, right? That's not the point. Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. And, and that word to, to them meant, I came to interpret the scriptures correctly and then walk it out correctly in front of you. He didn't abandon any of the law whatsoever. But what I am saying is that Jesus wants to produce a citizenry of people who express his culture and manifest his nature, revealing the will, the purpose, and the intent of his kingdom. And to do that, we need a heart change. And as our heart changes, it will be most obvious to the people around us in the way we treat them, not in what we say to them. 
If we want to have a vertical morality, if we want to be right with God, we need to develop a horizontal morality where we're right with people around us. He's so concerned about this that he links the forgiveness of our sins to us forgiving them. It's shocking, isn't it? The irresistible euangelion was the kingdom of God has come near you. There's a new king and a new kingdom. Jesus is that king and he's God. And he proved his deity by calling his shot. In three days, or in a few days, I'm going to be crucified. And in three days, I'm going to be raised from the dead. And then he pulled it off. He delivered. <laughs> and he has a new governing ethic for his kingdom. One commandment, love one another. So now I'm going to go to part three. I want to provide just a little bit of color on the different groups that Jesus would have been talking to. For 100 years, the Romans had been ruling Israel by the time Jesus is ministering. And so within the national psyche of the, of the Israelites, the, the Hebrew people, uh, there was this longing for God to return and reestablish Israel, the kingdom of God. So that you see there's a little bit of confounding going on in all these ideas about what the kingdom of God might be. So let's go to slide nine. So I want to start here with slide nine by basically just talking about three major forces, streams of thought, streams of activity, cultural power, powerful cultural forces that Jesus would have been dealing with. So the first one is the synagogue. Okay. So back in 532 BC, Cyrus decreed you get to go back to Israel. And this is Ezra and Nehemiah. We know these stories, right? Almost no one goes back to Israel. Almost no one. They stay in exile in Babylonia or in Babylon. Uh, and there's this general sense amongst the exiles that we really screwed up. We, we can't do this again, right? And so they develop this, this synagogue system where we are going to learn the word. We are not going to screw up again. And within the synagogue system, they create this, this, this educational system for males, okay? And so from ages five to nine, you would have Bet Sefer. And this is, you know, this is where you memorize Torah, which is the first five books of our Bible, right? You, they memorize it by the time they're nine. And about 90% of the kids, at this point, they say, hey, you're a good kid. You love God. You don't really have what it takes for the next level. Why don't you go home and fish with your dad? <laughs> Take up the family business, right? right? And then just a few, maybe 10% or less, get invited to go to Bet Midrash. And in Bet Midrash, from ages 10 to 15, they memorize the rest of Tanakh, which is the rest of the Jewish Bible. Yeah, think about it. Our scriptures, the Gospels and the letters Paul wrote, are the smallest part of that book we carry around. These kids by 15 have memorized almost all of the front section. Okay. And most of those kids get sent home. Only a very, very, very 
tiny percentage, less than a tenth of a percent of these kids would get an invitation to proceed to Bet Talmud. And this is where our rabbi would say to him, follow me. Yeah, Jesus was a Jew. <laughs> the goal was to know what the rabbi knows in order to do what the rabbi does for the reasons the rabbi does them in order to be just like the rabbi in his walk with God. Paul writes in his letter, follow me as I follow Christ. That's the same idea. So this is not a spoiler for those of you who haven't seen season three yet uh, of The Chosen. It came out in the theaters this last Saturday. You were going to see Judas Iscariot, which was hinted at at the end of season two, come up to Jesus and say, hey, I completed Bet Midrash. Uh, had to go to work for the family, but you know, he's saying I'd be a pretty good candidate to be invited to Bet Talmud and follow you, Jesus. Okay, second main force is Hellenism. We already talked about this a little bit, and all I want to talk about here is, is it's, it's that the Hellenistic worldview bumped the gods out of the center of the story. And at that point, it became all about me. My pleasure, my comfort, me. And this is important because Hellenism is the worldview of the chief priests, Herod, and, and the people called Herodians, okay? And then the last major force is the actual chief priests in the Hasmonean Empire. So, a little bit of history. From 333 to 167 BC, so 333 represents Alexander the Great conquering the whole world, to 167, Israel's ruled by the Greeks. Uh, by the Greeks. And it, there's different types of Greeks ruling them at different times, but it's ruled by the Greeks. And then King Antiochus Epiphanes of Syria, a Greek ruler, desecrates the temple by sacrificing a pig. Boom. Big blow up, right? And the Maccabees, Judas Maccabee, actually overthrows the Greek empire, and Israel is ruling itself for the first time since they've gone into exile. This is a really, really big deal. And that act is, 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 is the basis of Hanukkah, which is being celebrated right now in, in, in December. Okay, so in 67 BC though, Rome enters. And that's really important to understand now because they've just lost their kingdom again. And that's why they have this big question in the context of reestablishing the kingdom of Israel, which is what we just lost, what do we do with Rome? And that kind of becomes the focal point of the, of the thinking of the various groups. So let's go to slide 10. Uh, what I have here is I just captured three different passages. And in red, what, you what I'm trying to call out is the peoples that are in those passages. Is that readable from here? It is for me. Okay, so in Acts 4, the first passage, it says the priests... So in Acts 4, you've got Peter in front of the Sanhedrin. He's in trouble for preaching the gospel, right? And so now he's kind of on trial, and he does a great sermon. We all know his sermon. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, and then you've got their rulers and elders and scribes, the Sanhedrin, and you have Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander. 
all who were of high priestly descent. This is interesting. These are Levites with Greek names. Do you think they might be Hellenists? Yeah? Okay. So this is something I wanted to call out. The chief priests are the descendants of Zadok. Zadok is the first chief priest in Solomon's temple after he builds the temple. Okay, so that name goes all the way back to Solomon's temple. And now from that person, Zadok, you've got all his lineage that are the chief priests. And those people of his lineage in Hebrew would be called Zadokim. Ends with H-I-M, Zadokim. And if you transliterate that into English, you end up with Sadducee. So anytime you see the chief priests or, or uh, uh, the elders and the scribes or the high priest, or you hear Sadducee, that's all equal. They're the same group of people. So the middle section, the two red, the two red words are Pharisees and Herodians. Okay. I always thought the Pharisees and the Sadducees were essentially the same. The priests, the lawyers, they all hated Jesus. They had one, major, they had one basic disagreement, and that was over the resurrection of the dead. But they were the same, and they're not. They're not even close. And then you get that last passage is Matthew 4, and it talks about how Jesus was going through all of Galilee, and these large crowds were following him. And in red, what I've got here is they've got Syria, Matthew starts with Syria, which is kind of weird because it's not even in Israel, which is kind of weird. Then Galilee, and we're going to talk more about Galilee because Galilee captures a lot of different groups. And then you have the Decapolis. Those are pagans. Those are Greeks. That's where, that's where the, 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 the legion, the, the, the man with the legion of demons is from, right? Then you have Jerusalem and Judea. This is, uh, uh, this is the southern Israel. Southern Israel, Galilee's in the northern Israel. These people don't like each other. They don't get along. And then you have beyond the Jordan. So these five groups I want to talk about, we're just going to talk about them one, uh, one group at a time. Uh, but I learned, uh, okay, let's take, a, let's take a look at who they are, one, once, one at a time. So slide 11. So the chief priests, I already talked about how they're the same as the Sadducees and the temple guard, right? So they ruled through the Sanhedrin. This was a small family dynasty, extremely corrupt. It was like the mob running the temple. You might remember Jesus saying, you've made my father's house a, 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 a den of thieves. Josephus, Josephus, Josephus is the historian. He described how they were gathering in the tithes, but they also gathered in a temple tax. Any Jew anywhere in the world, Jewish male, had to pay the temple tax annually. They literally had to put armies of people together to carry the cash back to Jerusalem. Some emperors were so upset that they banned it because they, they, were, they were taking so much cash out of the local economy, it was creating problems, right? And do you know what they did? They found a new coin. That coin was from Tyre. It was about the size of a shekel. And that's what the money changers were changing at the temple. And guess who set the exchange rate? The high priests. These guys, it was a money printing machine. And, and, and the picture kind of captures the luxury in which they were living, right? This house 
The chief priest's home is on the Temple Mount. It spans the main road. There are two wings, 17 bedrooms. It was so large that it was terraced down the hill. Jesus probably had part of his trial in this home. And you see the mosaics on the floor. They're very Hellenistic, luxury, big spaces, comfort, design, right? That was, that was very important to me. They loved Hellenism. They loved the power, the luxury, and the leisure. Uh, Josephus writes that there were not enough priests to cover the temple services. Although there were thousands of priests and you only had to do two services a year. Think about that, do that math. They couldn't cover the services because they were all at the sporting events that they loved. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are complete opposites. They're complete opposites. So what do the Sadducees say we do with Rome? We partner with them to preserve our power. The Herodians, slide 12. So the Herodians are essentially the same as the Sadducees, the chief priests, except they're not priests. They're Hellenists, right? They have the same worldview. They like the same pleasures. So what you have up there is on the upper left, that's a street. That's a picture of a street that has been tiled with a mosaic. You would never see that in a Pharisee's town. They would never waste resources on something like this. Very, 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 very rough uh, kinds of streets in a Pharisaical town. The one on the upper right, this beautiful design on, on, on the floor. On the left, on the bottom, that's, that's a decoration. That's, that's art. That's just, I, I've hung a picture in my home. That's Pan, the goat god, the god of sexual fertility. This is, this is what the Herodians were decorating their homes with. On the right, it's a table. It's a centerpiece on a table of the Nile gods. So the Herodians were, were uh, Hellenistic Jews. Re remember the passage in Acts where there's this big uproar because the Hellenistic widows, Jewish widows, were not being served. I always thought they were Greeks. They aren't. They're Herodians. And the Herodians and the pious Jews didn't get along at all, and so these widows were being neglected. The, the, the Herodians celebrated the comforts and enjoyed the culture Greeks created. They enjoy what Rome brings. There's a huge gulf between them and the more pious Jews. They love Hellenism. They love design. Have you seen my new kitchen? Have you seen the latest movie? How about them Vikings or the Packers, right? Right? Wow, I just had my knee replaced. Great health care. My kid goes to Yale. Are your texts green or blue? These are Herodians. Kind of sounds familiar. Uh, their worldview was, I love God and I love stuff. And there's room for both in my life. Joanna, whose husband Chusa was Herod's administrator, is one of the women who supported Jesus' ministry. Uh, if you haven't seen those, those, the first episodes of season three, look for her. She's clearly a Herodian. Uh, so what do you do with Rome if you're a Herodian? Embrace it and love the stuff. <laughs> so let's go to slide 13, the Essenes. What do you do with Rome if you're an Essene? 
you run away from Rome. You go out into the desert. Uh, you abandon the world. You're a separatist. You're obsessed with eschatology. They're, they were the righteous priests amongst the Sadducees, amongst the chief priests. They were, they were the righteous priests. Uh, they saw all that corruption in the temple and just were horrified by it. And they thought the end of times was at hand. And so they went to the desert to prepare for the end of times. They were a couple thousand millennial or millennia early. They produced the Dead Sea, Dead sea Scrolls. These are people that loved the word. So if you hear of the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran, these are the people who produced th those documents. And they were super, super accurate because they loved scripture. They did not reproduce the er any errors. Uh, they love the scriptures, know the path, walk the path, walk it out in the wilderness and abandon the world. I love these people. I absolutely do. I can identify with them. I often find myself in the wee hours of the morning in my recliner in my office reading my Bible and praying. And I'm like, this is enough. That's pretty a scene. <laughs> so let's go to slide 14. Take a look at that map. Let's see what happens. Did I explain the pictures? Let's go back. The pictures, uh, those would have been the caves that you would have experienced from uh, where the Dead Sea Scrolls might have been found. I'm not saying that's the cave, but that's kind of the places where they were living and hiding their scrolls and hiding from the Romans, doing their work. On the right is a picture from where they would have been out to the north end of the Dead Sea, where the Jordan River flows in, and that's where John the Baptist might have been, was baptizing in the Jordan River, was in that green area up there. So. That brings me to my point. John the Baptist's father was called a righteous priest. Remember that? He was likely an Essene. Uh, and as a result, John the Baptist was probably educated by Essenes. Uh, and, and, and another kind of clue that would suggest he was an Essene was he was baptizing within spitting distance of where they found the scrolls, right? This is where the Essenes ended up. So let's go to slide 15. This is a map of the Sea of Galilee. If you go, uh, you would want to go ahead. Yep, there we go. So if you go up that Jordan River, up that valley, you, you get to the Sea of Galilee. The distance between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee, the north end of it, or, or Jerusalem and the, and the north end of the Sea of Galilee, it's like 80 miles. This is like New Richmond to Rogers. It's like this whole story could have played out in our metro area, okay? The lake itself, is 13 miles long, seven miles across. It's not a really big, very big lake. 80% uh, of Jesus' recorded ministry happens basically around that lake. So Tiberius is, was built by the son of Herod. That's a Herodian city. You've got uh, Nazareth over in the lower left, which would have been a Pharisaical city. Zippori was a Herodian city. You've got Gennesaret, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum forming that triangle. That's called the religious triangle. This is where the pious Jews, the Pharisees, went up and built towns because they were horrified by the way the Sadducees, Sadducees were behaving. And they went up there to, 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 to pre prepare for the kingdom of God. To the right, you've got Gamla. That's the second to the last stand for the zealots. So that's a zealot city. And then on the lower right, you've got Hippos or Susida, which is the, one of the, it's the northernmost uh, town of the Decapolis. So there's your pagans. That's, you've got all the players of these crowds that were following Jesus around in that map. Okay, let's, let's, 
so, so note where Mount Arbel is on the map. They're on this kind of the point of the lake on the west side. Next, next slide. So it's way easier for me to do the to talk about this from a picture and to kind of see what we're talking about, but you got Mary Magdalene kind of at the, at the Magdala at the, at, the, at the bottom of the Mount Arbel. Uh, that's where Mary Magdalene was from. To the right, just off the picture, would have been Tiberius, just out of the scene. You got Gennesaret and Capernaum and, and, and Bethsaida and Chorazin all forming that triangle. I mean, just look at that picture. We're talking 30-minute walks between these towns, 45-minute walks between these towns. This is, this is a very, very closely compacted kind of story. And then Eremos Topos. Jesus went and, uh, to a certain place where he gave his Sermon on the Mount. Well, certain place in Greek is Eremos Topos. And they, they think that might be where the Sermon on the Mount happened. Then you've got uh, Gamla is just there off to the up, upper right, and that's where the zealots would have been. Okay. So you have zealots, you have Pharisees, you have Herodians and Greek pagans, uh, all in very close proximity. I mean, as I read this, I'm kind of thinking about these, these, these people don't, they don't participate in the same barbecues, okay? <laughs> They're very, very different people. And they're all following Jesus in a mixed crowd. This, this euangelion that he was proclaiming had oil and water mixing. It had cats and dogs sleeping together. I mean, it was, this is amazing. So let's go to slide 17. We'll talk about the zealots very quickly. So this is one of the two groups of the Hasidim. The Hasidim are the pious ones, okay? So the zealots were one of the groups, and the answer to what they do with uh, Rome is right up there. They just, they kill them, okay? <laughs> this is our plan. We're just going to kill them all. They, uh, this is the Gamla ruins, the second to the last uh, place where they, they uh, defended themselves against the, the Rome. And you can see the little red circle. That's where uh, the Romans are thought to have breached the wall. And even after breaching the wall for almost four months, the zealots held them off. This is the Roman legion, right, that they're holding off. And then they think what happened was one night, somebody saw something and, and sounded the alarm in a panic that they were, the Romans were in here, and the zealots ran to the top of that hill and threw themselves off en masse, the backside, in a mass, in a, in a, in a mass suicide. Okay. So that's our friends, the zealots. Uh, their, their attitude is, let's, let's continue in the likes of David and the Maccabees and kick the Romans out by force. They're devoted to God. They're people of the sword. They believed in redemptive violence. So like, just a quick history. Starts with Phineas back in Numbers 25. Phineas sees a, a, a Jewish man and a Midianite woman in a, in, a, in a position where he can put a spear through both of them right at the ta tabernacle door, okay? Look it up. Uh, later on, you have Judas Maccabee who kicks the Greeks out. And, and, and the, then you get Gamla, they hold off the Roman legion. These people are zealous. And then lastly, Masada, right? That was their last stand. Simon the Zealot was a zealot. He's one of the 12. Let's go to the Pharisees. What do, we, what do the Pharisees want to do with Rome? You're asking the wrong question, they'd say. God will deal with Rome. What we need to focus on is the absolute obedience to God. When we get it right, then God will return and save us. When they see a sinner, tax collector, prostitute, they see someone that's just delaying the return of God. 
They left Jerusalem and built cities at the north end of the Sea of Galilee, the cities I mentioned earlier. He spent, Jesus spends almost three years of his ministry with these people. They are all about absolute obedience. They have everything Jesus needs to work with, except compassion. So let's sum up the, the various groups. Slide 19. The chief priests, what do they have going for them? Well, generously speaking, they were living the priestly role. Okay? Not well. But they are completely corrupt. You got the Herodians. They are part of the culture and perfectly placed to influence the culture. Their weakness is that it's all about them. Uh, I can have a little bit of Rome and a little bit of God. The Essenes, their complete devotion to the word. They know the word, they walk the word. Their problem is that they're separated from people. They're fringe, fundamentalist, end times focused fanatics. The Zealots, they're zealous. They do something, they're moving. Jesus can use them. Their weakness, they want to use the world's weapons. They cannot see the potential in people like the Romans. And then the Pharisees, they are completely devoted to obedience and God's commandments. They really want to get it right. Their problem is that they lack compassion. They don't see the potential in any of the people who aren't getting it right. They're just very black and white and judgmental. So remember the euangelion, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What did each of these groups need to repent from? The chief priests, corruption. You're making my father's house a den of thieves. The Herodians, you're not the center of the world. That worldview leads to idolatry. The Essenes, they withdrew from people. The kingdom needs to touch people. You cannot hide a light under a basket. Zealots, just stop killing people. (laughs) Peter, put that sword away. Pharisees, you're so close. You're passionate about getting it right, but you make it hard for others to get in. John says it this way in 539. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me and you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. You lack compassion, you lack love, you lack kindness. You don't see potential in people that I can see. I began pulling this thread five or six years ago. Uh, And it's only useful if it brings about a change in me, right? So what have I repented of? I do not love the way Jesus exemplified love. I just don't. Like a Herodian, my faith is all about me. Like the Essenes, I have often had the thought in the wee hours as I read scripture and pray alone, this is enough. And then the Pharisees, this one's kind of tricky because we use Pharisaical to kind of mean hypocrite, right? Legalistic. But really, their weakness was not seeing the value or potential of people who don't live like them. I have to repent of this as well. So Paul writes to the Corinthian church that it is imperative to love. If I can speak with the tongues of angels and men, if I'm a great orator, if I have a huge podcast following, if I can hold your attention for an hour without even thinking about it, but do not have love, I'm a clanging cymbal. I'm a person talking really loud in a small cafe. I have awful feedback on a PA system or the screech of chalk on a chalkboard, right? It does not matter how good my message is if I don't have love. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith so as to move mountains, Paul's saying if you are a rock star Christian that draws crowds because of the spectacle of your ministry, but you don't have love, I am nothing. And if I can give all my possessions to the poor, 
but I don't have love, it doesn't profit me anything. Because charity without love is, af- is, is worthless. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. Faith, faith in the resurrection, the hope of glory that Christ in me would produce his nature, his culture in me, and love for one another. But the greatest of these is love. One last question, why is love greater than the other two? And it's because the ends is greater than the means. Faith and hope are just the means to love. So, next slide. If you're interested in exploring how we make our gospel message irresistible to our culture today, Susanna and I are going to be leading a Wednesday night class in January uh, where we talk about this. Uh, It's based on the book Irresistible by Andy Stanley. You can see it there on the right. We'd love to have you join us. Some of the other resources that I've used, that I've been studying, The Greatest Thing in the World by Henry Drummond. Uh, Vern Norton preached an awesome message sometime in the past where he talked about how that book, how he wore it out once and then he got another copy and wore it out again. He talked about how he learned love. It's an amazing exposition on 1 Corinthians 13. A couple books by Andrew Murray, Humility and Abiding Christ, and then the BMA podcast. So, Justin... Time for the offering. Thanks for your attention. So we just celebrated Thanksgiving, and how many know it's good to be thankful? Um, So has anybody ever met someone who is ungrateful? Anyone other than me been that person? (laughs) All right. So I've got a couple of scriptures that are a little unconventional for the offering teaching, but between Brian and Mark and... Linda and Emily, they've already knocked the softballs out of the park. So we're going to go to Luke chapter 7, um, starting verse 41. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them would love me more or love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with the oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other passage is in Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of the Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers, who stood far off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And so it was as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to them, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. So the point I want to illustrate with these two passages of Scripture is that A grateful heart and thankfulness produces a response. And I want to suggest to you that our giving is a byproduct of gratitude. So if you you understand the importance of giving thanks and a grateful heart, it will will shift your perspective. 
And there's a, there's a progression that can be seen in the end of uh, Romans chapter 12. This one I don't, I don't have for the guys, so sorry, bear with me. Um, Romans 1, 1.21, it says, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So many in this world have hardened hearts or darkened hearts, and they have become futile in their thoughts. And you can see that this is actually a progression. Glorifying God and being thankful, they failed to do those things, and they, they got down the progression to where their hearts were hardened and they became futile in their thoughts. So if you want to reverse that trend, maybe, maybe you find yourself hardened in your heart, you find yourself with a wrong perspective, you find yourself with a wrong attitude towards giving, you are not generous, you're not thankful. Back up, it says to be thankful. That's one of the very first things in that progression. So as we acknowledge that God has given us things we haven't deserved and that he's only given us those things because Jesus deserved them, we get our perspective right. We, we become um, positioned to have a right perspective and to receive the things of God. So Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to give. We thank you that you have given us things um, that we didn't deserve, but because you have given us your righteousness through Christ, we, we now receive them. And so, Lord, we, we ask that you teach us um, to become um, grateful in our thoughts, that we would practice a spirit of thanksgiving each day, and that we would respond um, as and those who are truly grateful. There, there is a response. So, Lord, as we give today, um, let it be because we are thankful towards you.